Morning. Well, we've learned quite a bit in the book of Daniel. And I've given you uh, on your first uh, page of your outline there, uh, maybe a list of things that you might have forgotten about. Some, some of us, you know, when we get through a book, you know, we've gone through, let's see, we've gone through um, the, the, gospel, or the, the book of Romans recently, and then before that we went through the Gospel of Mark. And we've been through many books uh, prior to that. And, and, and this is a Bible teaching church. We try to walk through books of the Bible. But sometimes you get to the point where you look back and say, wait, what did I learn? Did I learn anything about Daniel? And, and the answer is, absolutely, we did. Sometimes we can't draw it all up at a moment's notice, but uh, I know that I eat every day because I'm still here. Uh, I know that I eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and sometimes I can't even remember what I had yesterday to eat, but I know that it was good for me. I know that it kept me going. And in the same way, I want to ask the question right off the bat, what have we learned in Daniel? We've learned quite a few things. In Daniel chapters 1, 3, and 6, we learned that God honors quiet faithfulness. You can jot that down on your outline. Quiet faithfulness. For we saw in those chapters that Daniel and his friends refused to profane their Jewish food laws in chapter 1. They refused to pay heed to a pagan god in chapter 3 and chapter 6. So God honors quiet faithfulness. We also learn in Daniel 2 and chapter 7 that God alone is the one who gives understanding. Understanding. In chapters 2 and 11, we, we saw Daniel interpreting dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. Dreams that reflected the kingdoms of Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and then a dreadful kingdom. The final kingdom of the Antichrist. And yet, despite the fact that Nebuchadnezzar didn't know what it meant, all of the the seers of, of Babylon did not know what it meant, but Daniel was given that revelation. He was given an unfolding of world history. God alone gives understanding. In Daniel chapter 4, we learn that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We saw Nebuchadnezzar go mad, have a disease in fact, called boanthropy perhaps. But that was followed by his turning to God. So we saw a man who was at the lowest of lows, but then when God showed him mercy, he rose up and turned to the Lord God. And in fact, we may see King Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom of God. Many believe that that was a, very much a turning to faith in chapter 4. In Daniel 5, we, we learn that God reigns over the kingdom of men over all the kingdoms of men. Belshazzar was a very proud king of Babylon, but he was, his days were numbered. And he and Babylon fell to the Persians. And it demonstrated that God controls the affairs of men, not world kingdoms. Skipping over to Daniel 8, we learned that tribulation awaits Israel, but that God will never abandon His people. We, we learned a lot about a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes and his exploits against the Jews. How the Jewish people went through great tribulation, great times of hardship, um, intense persecution. But we learned that God never abandoned them. And indeed, He never will abandon us. In Daniel, the early part of Daniel 9, we learned that God is quick to forgive those who repent. We read Daniel's prayer, his cry on behalf of his people. 
In the latter part of chapter 9, we learn that both blessings and tribulation await Israel in the future. The Messiah is coming. From Daniel's perspective, the Messiah was coming. But Antichrist was also coming. So there was going to be both blessing and tribulation awaiting Israel's future. And then as we come to the last section, chapters 10, 11, and 12, we learned in 10 and 11 that the kings of the earth, they labor in vain. So God's people ought to avoid unholy alliance, alliances and rise above the lust for power. We saw, especially in Daniel 11, we saw just king after king after king. And it was all a, a quest for power, lust for power, greed among those kings, and yet all for naught. Each one of them died just like any other mere man. And God was teaching us there to avoid that lust for power. Avoid unholy alliance with the kings of this earth. In the latter part, just this last uh, a couple Sundays ago, we learned in chapter 11 that Antichrist will epitomize the godless quest for power. And he will wreak havoc upon the world and Israel when he comes. And now we come to chapter 12. Wrapping it all up in which God will make all things right for those whose faith and trust is in Him. God will make all things right for those whose faith and trust is in Him. Today we come to the final installment in the book of Daniel. And these last three chapters, chapters 10, 11, and 12, we've been in a five-part series in those chapters because together they... They, uh, they symbolize the final vision of Daniel. So the title of our message today is Daniel's Final Vision, Part 5, The End of These Things. The End of These Things. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 demonst- uh, exemplify the final vision that Daniel received. And today we come to the last part of our study in those chapters and in the book of Daniel. As we've learned, those last three chapters represent a prophetic conversation that Daniel is having with a messenger of God, a vision of the future. And the messenger with whom Daniel speaks is likely Jesus Himself. Jesus has just told Daniel, He's spent all of chapter 11 talking about the kings of this earth that are to come from Daniel's vantage point. From our vantage point, it's history, most of it. But from Daniel's vantage point, it was all future. And Jesus has been telling him about the coming kings and about the vanity of their quest for power. About their many exploits. He also has included information about a final king. A wicked king. The final king of the north. The Antichrist. And at the end of chapter 11, we marked the most detailed discussion of the Antichrist in all of the Old Testament. We learned a number of things about this man. I've listed it on your outline. You don't need to fill in the blanks this time. But this is what we learned at the last part of chapter 11 about this man, the Antichrist. We learned that he, will, uh, he derives from the land of Syria, Iraq, or western Iran if he is considered the king of the north, which he is called. And every king of the north preceding him derived from those lands. And so we make the inference that it's quite possible that the final king, the final king of the north, the Antichrist, will also derive from those regions. It just makes sense. Secondly, 
that he shuns the God of his fathers. He's not a man uh, who recognizes any of the gods of this age. Third, he worships the God of fortresses, that is Satan. Fourth, he exalts himself as a God. Fifth, he knows of and he curses the God of Israel. It's not that the Antichrist doesn't know of God, of the Lord God of the Bible. He does know of Him. And in fact, He curses Him. Sixth, He prospers amidst worldwide wrath and chaos. Seventh, He uses war, bribery, and payoffs to gain power. Next up, He wages war and defeats a king of the south, that is, of Egypt. He allies himself with Libya, which is to say northern Africa, and Ethiopia, which is to say eastern Africa. And finally, he returns to Jerusalem to destroy and annihilate many. We've limited, those descriptions there are limited to the end of Daniel 11. There's much more that could be said of this man, but we've limited that description to what we see and read at the end of Daniel 11. And it is this last point, this last point, returning to Jerusalem to destroy and annihilate many, that last point that we want to zero in on for just a moment. Because it is this last point that continues the theme as we pick up in chapter 12 of Daniel. You see, God's messenger, perhaps Jesus Himself, is going to tell Daniel a little bit more about this time of trial in Jerusalem. We pick up the story in verse 1 of chapter 12 in Daniel. Verse 1 reads as follows. And this is Daniel here quoting, if you will, writing down the words of Jesus, God's messenger, as it said to him, this vision. 12 verse 1, At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. Here we see Michael. Michael the archangel. Often mentioned in Scripture in the context of protection. Back in chapter 10 of Daniel... Michael was tasked with protecting the messenger of God with whom Daniel spoke. He was tasked with protecting the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And in fact, Revelation chapter 12 bears this out as well. Michael the archangel, spoken of about three or four times in Scripture, is tasked, one of his tasks, is to protect the Son of God. And here, it is also said that he stands watch over the Jewish people to protect them to stand up in their defense. He's given the responsibility to protect them, to rise in defense of Israel. And Israel will need a defender. For verse 1 goes on to say that there will be a time of trouble such as never was since they were a nation. Jesus called this time the Great Tribulation. You can read about His description in Matthew chapter 24. You know, when we think of Great Tribulation, Great Chaos... Um, we don't have to go much further back in history. In fact, today marks the one-year anniversary of the 9.0 earthquake in Japan. Do you remember that? 9.0 earthquake. And just 
what was it, an hour after the earthquake came a tsunami so large, less than an hour, came a tsunami so large that it wiped out whole towns and villages on the eastern side of Japan. Um, It was a devastating tsunami and earthquake. Over 16,000 people were killed within hours. Over 3,000 are still missing today. We've seen similar horrors in Haiti and even closer to home with some smaller storms, but the likes of what we saw in Arkansas and in Joplin, Missouri. We look back and we, we see Katrina in our rearview mirror. But all of these disasters, all these things that we look around in our world and we see these, these awful things, they're so localized, aren't they? They're so localized. I mean, we, we watch it from afar. I remember turning on the television um, and watching the tsunami on, on TV and watching the waves just pouring over uh, portions of a, of a village, of a city. And I remember just, I couldn't, my mind couldn't comprehend it. And after a while, I couldn't watch anymore. And so I turned the disaster off. Click. Disaster gone. When we don't want to see it anymore, just turn it off, right? Not so with the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation that awaits the world the plagues that will come upon the world at the time of the end, they won't merely be localized. They won't merely be things that you can turn on and when you're tired of it, turn off. The Great Tribulation will be experienced by all. I've given you just a quick summary uh, on the screen here of some of the things that can be expected during the Tribulation period. In Revelation chapter 6, if you turn there, it speaks of worldwide economic collapse. The total collapse of monetary value. People having to bring you know, buckets of money to buy wheat, to buy bread. It speaks of a quarter of the world's population being killed by famine, by war. It speaks of cosmic disturbances, the sun being blotted out, the stars falling to the ground. If you jump over to Revelation 8, there's more. A third of the earth's landmass will be burned up. A third of the waters will turn to blood. A third of the animals will be killed. And guess what? All of this, most scholars would argue, happens in the first part of the tribulation period. In the first three and a half years. You have to turn to Revelation 16 to read the rest of it. And let me tell you, in Revelation 16, it gets a whole lot more intense. That's that's where the, uh, the description great takes on new meaning as you read Revelation 16 and see the kinds of things that are coming on the earth. So when Daniel says it will be a time of trouble such as never was, he is not exaggerating. The the time that the scholars who who read Daniel 12 and say, well, this this is all historical. This is all a matter of Antiochus Epiphanes in 2nd century B.C., It doesn't make complete sense of the text here. It doesn't make complete sense of the Scriptures, of the other Scriptures, how they lay out the time of the end. If it is to be a time like never before, then the descriptions of the Great Tribulation in Revelation 6 through 19 would seem to align quite nicely with what we see in Daniel 12. It will not be a localized event. It will be worldwide chaos 
widespread, terrible, everywhere. But God's messenger, he tells Daniel that one group will survive. He says at the end of verse 1, At that time, your people, Daniel, shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book, that is to say the book of life, a remnant will survive. And they will be delivered. And God tells Daniel why. Because their names are written in the book of life. When we believe in Jesus, death is no longer to be feared. Those who have faith in Christ as their Savior need not worry about the coming tribulation, but can find rest in the knowledge that God has written our names in heaven's book, the book of life. And though some will be martyred during the tribulation period, though we will be raptured prior to the tribulation, during the tribulation some will be martyred. Some will be killed for their faith. But the hope of resurrection assuages all fear in death. It is the resurrection that becomes now the focus of the continuance of the, re- of, of the revelation. Take a look at verse 2 of Daniel chapter 12. Let's read verse 2 and 3. Daniel continues to record the vision. The messenger tells him, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The Bible could not be clearer about the two options that await us. It is either heaven or it is hell. In beautiful and poetic fashion, Jesus tells Daniel that many of those who sleep in the dust, that is to say many of those who will die, will awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Two options, heaven or hell. The Bible's quite clear on this point. But for those who have put their trust in Jesus, the Bible is also clear. Heaven is their destination. To those who have not put their trust in Jesus, to those who deny Jesus Christ as the Savior, hell is their destination. All unbelievers will experience shame and everlasting contempt in the lake of fire. And I want to just say with every fiber of my body, don't leave here not having known your response to this teaching. Heaven or hell, that's the message of the Bible. Life or death, eternal life or death. And it all hinges on whether or not we believe in Jesus Christ. That is the testimony of the Bible. That is the teaching of Jesus Christ. That is the teaching of the Christian church. And you, no one ought to leave here today not having at least acknowledged that as the teaching of the Bible, as the teaching of the church, and realize that they need to make a decision whether or not they're going to believe on the Lord for salvation or continue on with their life and deny Him. Any who say that The Bible does not teach of the exclusivity of Christ. Or any who say that the Bible does not teach that it's either heaven or hell, they're simply not reading the Bible with clarity. I know many who uphold the Bible and uphold the teachings of Christ. I have family members who esteem the teachings of Christ, and yet they believe that there's no such thing as a hell. 
And I look upon them and I say, do you willfully ignore passages like these? Do you willfully ignore the teachings of Jesus Himself who says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That means some will perish. But those who believe will have everlasting life. Acknowledge the Bible for what it teaches. Acknowledge that we need to choose either heaven or hell. And we choose it by whether or not we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Those who do believe. Many, it says, who sleep in the dust of the earth, some will awake to everlasting life. And they will shine like the brightness of the heavens. Faithful believers will shine all the more. But why does it say, and here's the question of the moment, why does it say only many will awake? Did you catch that in verse 2? Why does it say only many will awake? Isn't it true in the Scriptures that all mankind will be raised? Isn't it true in the Scriptures that all mankind will be resurrected to stand before Almighty God? To either receive reward in heaven before the judgment seat of Christ or to stand before God at the final judgment awaiting punishment in hell? The answer is yes. All mankind will be raised. Every man, woman, and child will be resurrected. The question becomes, resurrected unto what? But keep in mind, from Daniel's vantage point, Daniel is writing about a point in time at the end of the tribulation period. Daniel is receiving a vision from God's messenger Jesus and speaking of the end of the great tribulation period. And we know from other scriptures that the rapture and the resurrection of the church is going to happen not at the end of the tribulation, but at the start of it. So it could well be said that God is alluding here to a multi-faceted approach to the resurrection. A multi-faceted approach to the resurrection. And here's what we can learn from Scripture. There's a few things about the resurrection that is laid out in Scripture. The first is this. Before, before the seven-year tribulation, the testimony of Scripture is such that those who are believers in Jesus, will be raptured. And the first resurrection of the church will take place at that time. In fact, some people also believe that all the Old Testament believers will be raptured up and, and, given, uh, and participate in that first resurrection prior to the tribulation period. We, some scholars differ on whether or not Old Testament saints are raised at that time or not. But the testimony of Scripture is that we will be raised prior to the tribulation. Okay, Daniel, in Daniel 12, is speaking of a time after the tribulation period. After the seven-year tribulation period, there will be also a resurrection. This time of Jew and Gentile believers who have been martyred or killed during the tribulation period. This might also include Old Testament believers if you believe that, they, that they will be raised at this time. And that, and that this reflects Daniel's statement that many who sleep shall awake some to everlasting life. Many of those during the tribulation period who have been martyred, who have been killed for their faith, will wake up at the end and will be raised 
unto everlasting life. But then there's a third group, a third resurrection, if you will, after the millennial kingdom. It's reflected in, in Revelation chapter 20. After a thousand year millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, there will be a second resurrection. A second resurrection of the unrighteous at the great white throne judgment. And this reflects Daniel's clause that some will rise up in shame and contempt, everlasting contempt. And so we see here two resurrections. A resurrection of the righteous and of the unrighteous. But we see it in different phases. Prior to the tribulation, the church. After the tribulation, all those martyred. Old Testament believers raised at one of the other moments in time there. And then finally, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, there will be another resurrection, this time of those. Those of the wicked. Those of the unrighteous. They'll be raised. They'll be resurrected. But they'll stand before God the Father. And in accordance with Revelation 20, they'll stand before a great white throne. And they'll be judged. And they'll be condemned. Every man, woman, and child will be resurrected. And there will be a multifaceted approach to that resurrection. And that is how we can understand Daniel's phrasing here. God's messenger, how, he's, how he words this to us here. For Daniel, however, such a multifaceted approach to the resurrection would not have been really on his, uh, on his mind. He wouldn't have had a framework for this. In fact, we'll soon read that Daniel wasn't even given full understanding of the very vision that he receives. Which is why Jesus goes on to tell him that he's going to need to seal up this vision. Take a look at verse 4. He says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Daniel was to put a seal on the scroll of his writing. He was to put a seal on it to protect its integrity, to preserve it for a generation beyond him. There would no doubt be many to come who would attempt to read Daniel's prophecy and find fulfillment in their day and age. But God warns Daniel and all of us that many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. But that this statement, friends, this statement of knowledge increasing, it was probably meant more as a rebuke than it was a blessing. Amos 8 gives us some insight into how this phrase might have been understood. Amos writes, quoting the Lord, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I'll send famine on the land, not a famine of bread, not a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. Amos writing just a hundred years prior to the time of Daniel. And so it seems that this phrase, running to and fro, knowledge increasing, it actually seems to be a rebuke of the Lord. Saying that there will be an attempt for these things to be understood. There will be an attempt of Daniel, of his contemporaries, of those after him, to try and get a full understanding and a full picture of this prophecy and to apply it and, and to pick and choose and to place it in certain boxes and to say, aha, here's where that's fulfilled. Aha, here's where that's fulfilled. But God warns Daniel that this 
incessant quest for knowledge and understanding of this prophecy will often fall on deaf ears. It will often not be fully understood by Christians, by Jews, by whole generations. And so, quite honestly, as we attempt, as we've attempted to go through this book, we seek its knowledge. We ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. But we do so with great humility, knowing full well that its final understanding, its final fulfillment may be for a generation long past ours. I wonder how many generations have said, like I believe today, that we are living in the time of the end. I believe we are. But I wonder how many generations before me have said that. And I'm sure I could lose count in trying to count them all. Surely, just about every generation can say, oh, this must be the time of the end. And they, and they would have taken Daniel, as we take Daniel today, and they would have gone, see, right here. Oh, see, this is happening here. And they would have lined it up, just as we try to line it up. And yet the Lord says here, hey, many shall run to and fro. Knowledge shall increase, but boy, this prophecy, its final understanding its final comprehension and fulfillment will be for that final generation. Whatever the case may be, however, I will always align myself with those who have the seed of urgency within them. The Bible has little regard for those who mock the delay of Jesus or those who mock the time of the end. Peter called them scoffers. Jesus said, hey, you keep that lantern lit. For you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So on the one hand, we're ready. On the one hand, we're looking up. On the one hand, we're saying, where is this being fulfilled today? And we, we, we do try to attempt to line up the pieces and see if in fact we are in the time of the end. But on the other hand, we step back. On the other hand, we pause and we say, wait a minute. Let's approach this and interpret this with great humility. I've given you my best explanation of this book. But so have many before me. And so will many after me. And surely there have been some things that we will get right as a generation and some things that we will probably miss. Daniel himself did not understand this fully as we are about to read. Daniel wanted more and more understanding of the vision. And so we come to verse 5. Take a look at verse 5. Then I, Daniel, I looked, and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? And then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river. And he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. As the vision is drawing to a close, Daniel now sees two other angels join the messenger of God. The angels are positioned on either end of the great river, the Tigris River. And one of them asks God's messenger, 
How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Here again, like in chapter 10, the description of God's messenger gives us every indication that it is likely Jesus Himself. He's hovering above the waters. He's clothed in white linen. He is sought out for wisdom and understanding by the angels near Him. Who else would this be? The description of God's messenger gives us every indication that it is the pre-incarnate Jesus Himself. And He makes a gesture toward the Father in Heaven that evokes great intimacy and confidence. And Jesus hears the question of the angel. He raises His hands and says that the wonders of the great tribulation period will last for a time and times and half a time. Which is to say three and a half years. The precise duration of the latter half of the tribulation period. The wonders, the plagues, the atrocities of great magnitude will continue on until the power of the holy people has been completely shattered and then all these things will be fulfilled. Lest we think that Daniel had a a perfect understanding of this, take a look at verse 8. Although I heard, Daniel says, I did not understand. And I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Comforting that Daniel didn't understand it all, isn't it? He, he was watching it before his very eyes. He was listening to Jesus Himself. And still he looked up at his Lord and said, Lord, uh, I don't get it. I don't fully understand this. Can you explain it more fully to me? But though Daniel did not in his day and age have full understanding of these things, Jesus says that a wise generation after him will come to an understanding of the truth. And he gives a prerequisite. He says something that is in common about that generation. He says in verse 10 that many of them shall be purified, made white, and refined. But the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. It would seem then that the wise generation that will receive final understanding of this vision have one thing in common. Refinement. There will be a generation that are purified and refined. There will be a generation that goes through a time of testing like none the world has ever seen. And they will prove themselves faithful. Jesus says that the wise shall understand through a great time of trial, through a great time of persecution, the wise shall finally come to understand the truth. We're speaking here, really, of the generation of Christians who come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation period. Jews and Gentiles, precisely though primarily we're speaking of your people here, Daniel, God speaking here of your people, the Jews, it is of tribulation saints who come to faith in Jesus. Jews who get final understanding of this matter. The wise shall understand. And they'll get it through a process of refinement, 
know, we're starting to give uh, my son some allowance money. Uh, we just decided to start doing that because we want him to learn the value of money. And so we give him, uh, I don't know what it is, a dollar or two a week. And Bennett takes his, his coins and, you know, he'll, he'll put some in uh, his Jesus bucket and he'll put some in his savings bucket and he'll have the rest and he'll put it in a little baggie and take it with him when we go to Target. And uh, he's holding his money bag at Target and he's looking at all the toys and uh, he's pointing, can I, what about that one? What about this one? What about this one? And, and inevitably, he can't afford any of them. And so I look at my son and I say, Bennett, you don't have enough money for those toys. And he looks at me and says, Dad, do you have money in your wallet? And I say, yes, I do. Could you buy this for me? And I say, no, Bennett. You need to save up your own money to buy it. But you have money. I know, Bennett. But I want you to save up your own money to buy this toy. You see, I could, I could buy it for him. That transformer that he loves so much. I could buy it for him. That army guy that he loves so much. But I don't buy it for him because I want to teach him the value of waiting, the value of saving, because I know that he'll come to value that toy so much more if he buys it himself. And so Casey and I, what we do is we give him benchmarks. We come home and we open up the calendar and we say, Bennett, if you are to save this many days, then you'll have enough money to buy that transformer to buy that toy. And he looks at the calendar and he can see the benchmarks and he realizes at that point in time that he can do it. He can persevere. He can wait just a little bit longer because he knows that if he crosses off just enough days, he will have earned enough to go back to Target and to buy the toy that he likes. And in the same way, friends, God gives, He gives that last generation that last generation of tribulation saints, He gives them some benchmarks, some hope in the midst of the great chaos of the tribulation, some benchmarks that will keep their spirits high and will motivate them to persevere to the end. Take a look at these benchmarks. Look at verse 11. Jesus tells Daniel, "...and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination..." of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. You might be thinking, what? What are we talking about here? Jesus tells Daniel that the Antichrist profaning of the temple when he Sets, when he walks into the temple in Jerusalem at the midpoint of the tribulation, declares himself to be God, slaughtering perhaps a pig and erecting a statue of Zeus on the altar, or really a, a statue of himself on the altar, he says that abomination of desolation that is put in the temple, that that abomination will one day be ridden. It will one day cease. And he tells us when. He says, from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Well, the 
The tribulation period is 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. That lasts three and a half years. So this indicates that there will be 30 more days after the battle of Armageddon, after the conclusion of the great tribulation, 30 days in which the tribulation saints can look to, can wait for, in anticipation of the cleansing and restoration of their temple. It is a benchmark. Nothing more, nothing less. It is a figure to give those people of the last generation, to give them hope, to give them encouragement. It's as if I'm telling Bennett, Bennett, if you wait two more weeks, you'll get that toy. Jesus tells the last generation, if you wait 30 more days past the end, you will see the cleansing of the temple. You will see all the havoc, all the persecution, all the distress gone when the temple is restored. It's hope for them. And he also encourages Daniel that there will be a special blessing upon that generation, upon those who endure to another day, to the 1,335th day, which is to say 75 days after the tribulation. Jesus doesn't elaborate here on what the blessing might be, but we can be reasonably sure from other Scriptures that it just might be the commencement of the marriage feast of the Lamb mentioned in Daniel, or excuse me, in Revelation 19 and in the Gospel of Matthew where all of God's children, Jew and Gentile, all those who have believed in Jesus Christ will come and sit down at Jesus' table and celebrate the great victory over Satan anticipating the great benevolent rule of King Jesus. It's likely what it means. Not foolproof, but we can speculate. These are benchmarks. 30 days after, the temple will be restored. 75 days after, you will dine with Jesus. Benchmarks to give us hope. And in the same way, friends, you and I have a benchmark. I don't believe we're going to go through the Great Tribulation period. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. But we have benchmarks. You know what our benchmark is? The rapture. That's it. It's the fact that when we hear the last trumpet, We'll be raised. We'll meet the Lord in the air. We will see Jesus. And we will rise up to meet Him in the blink of an eye. That's our benchmark. And so you might be going through trials and tribulations. Not, not like what will come, let me tell you. But you might be going through a marriage that's, that's, that's difficult. You might be going through a situation at work that is difficult. You might be going through raising your children. And and in this moment, it is difficult. But you have benchmarks. You have benchmarks of hope. You have the benchmark of the rapture. Of the resurrection that is coming. It is coming, friends. It is just around the corner. And Daniel 2 is given a benchmark. We conclude the book in verse 13. But you, Jesus tells Daniel... Go your way, Daniel. Go your way till the end. For you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. But you, Daniel, go your way till the end. For you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Jesus tells Daniel, you will participate in the resurrection. You will participate in that great benchmark of hope 
Daniel, you don't understand it all right now. <laughs> you, you were given knowledge of dreams. You were given knowledge of visions. You stood before kings and explained their dreams and their visions to them. And though you can't understand this last one in full, Jesus tells him, you will rest and you will rise on the last day. You will rise to a great inheritance. So the song reads, and I will rise when He calls my name. No more sorrow. No more pain. I will rise on eagle's wings before my God. Fall on my knees and rise. I will rise. That's what God leaves Daniel with. That's what He leaves us with as we conclude this great prophetic book. Friends, there is a benchmark of hope We've covered great chaos and tribulation, but there is a benchmark of hope. You who have believed in Jesus, your body will not remain in the grave. You will rise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're humbled by the teaching in the book of Daniel. We've learned a great many things, Father. It's been very challenging at times, but it's been good. We're comforted by the fact that not even Daniel understood it all. But where we have gained insight, we are grateful and we're better for it. I thank You for the great knowledge that we've incurred. Moreover, Lord, I thank You for the life lessons to know that You alone give understanding. You alone give protection. That You laugh at the quest for power of the kings of this earth, that You are looking upon the least of these. Those who have been afflicted, those who are suffering persecution and pain. And You are a God who responds to the One who humbles Himself before You. You are a God who promises benchmarks of hope that we will rise on the last day. We claim that hope, Lord. We cling to that hope as we conclude this time in Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.